When the Veterans Health Administration had big supply problems early in the pandemic, it wasn't just a matter of high demand all over. VA has long-standing issues with supply chain and inventory management. We get the latest from the Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions Issues at the Government Accountability Office, Shelby Oakley. Ms. Oakley, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Tom. So you looked at the bigger issue and just review for us what problems VA did face early on in the pandemic. And I guess I should ask, are they still facing them? Yeah, VA was just like other entities worldwide. They struggled to obtain, you know, necessary personal protective equipment early on in the pandemic and had a real all-hands-on-deck effort to try and obtain these supplies wherever they could. But because VA, VA is the nation's largest integrated hospital chain, but it lacks an, an effective inventory management system. And what I mean by that is, is that their inventory management system is siloed, at each of the VA medical centers, and it's a manual process. And so this really left VHA with a lack of information at the beginning of the pandemic to be able to make real strategic decisions about where the supplies were needed, because obviously there were hot spots in the country, and being able to shift supplies across an enterprise as large as VA was an important thing that VA didn't have the capability to do early on in the pandemic. Now, they evolved, and they developed kind of an online dashboard that allowed leaders to better monitor supplies, but, you know, it was a real challenge for these VA medical centers to get what they needed. Really, they faced a lot of volume of vendors wanting to sell PPE to the government, right? Some of them were, frankly, attempting to exploit the pandemic. It was pretty much an onslaught for these folks and kind of weeding through who are legitimate and who aren't was a challenge. And while most vendors obviously have good intentions and pulled through and delivered supplies, our work was showing that VA has had historic numbers of contract deobligations. And that means they took money off of the contract when vendors couldn't you know, deliver sure. the necessary supplies. So a mad um, scramble then can lead to some poor purchasing decisions. Yeah, exactly. So when you're doing things quick and trying to kind of just get things awarded, in some instances, you know, contracts were awarded and the vendors couldn't pull through. And so we had to have some uh, contract terminations that led to, you know, those deobligations I was talking about. And you also mentioned in the report that prior to the advent of the pandemic, the VA did have several initiatives going on to update their inventory and supply management systems but those have problems of their own. Yeah, correct. VA kind of has had a lot of balls in the air with regard to supply chain management initiatives. It has what it's called is its Medical Surgical Prime Vendor Program, which is supposed to be VA's preferred approach for obtaining medical supplies for its 170 medical centers. And so these are contracts that are already in place that VA's medical centers can just, ordering officials can just call up and say, hey, I need X, and it's delivered the same day or the next day. And that's in the process of being updated and reawarded, but it's delayed significantly. And we issued a report on that earlier in this year. VA is also exploring going with the Defense Logistics Agency's Medical Surgical Prime Vendor Program. And the Defense Logistics Agency has a similar type approach to the VA, but, you know, obviously it's for the Department of Defense facilities and whatnot. And so that hat comes with other complications that VA is still working through in terms of some of its requirements for contracting with, you know, veteran-owned businesses and whatnot. 
And finally, VA is really looking to use DLA's, Defense Logistics Agency's, inventory system itself, like the, the actual physical system that will allow kind of better tracking and monitoring of, you know, inventory and supplies and, and whatnot goes beyond an inventory management system. But again, that that <laughs> that rollout has been delayed and has faced some pretty significant challenges. And so those, among other things that have surfaced since the pandemic itself are are many of the things that VA is contending with to try and improve its supply chain management. We're speaking with Shelby Oakley, Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions Issues at the Government Accountability Office. So is it fair to say then, can we conclude that if VA could get these initiatives finished and running, they might have had fewer supply problems and then could potentially have fewer supply problems in the next national health emergency? Yeah, I think many of the things that VA is trying to do will position it to better be able to respond in situations like this. At the very least, they would have more data and information to understand how to make better decisions, right? Two of the other initiatives that VA is trying to get underway are what are called regional readiness centers. And these are essentially like centers that are geographically dispersed around the country that would store personal protective equipment and other vital medical supplies for these VA medical centers, and they would be able to provide that kind of like surge capacity for VA in times of challenge like we're facing now. And so those are underway. They face delays. They're in an interim kind of operating status, but that's one of the approaches that VA is taking in addition to the other things I mentioned. And then another approach VA wants to explore and is working on is participation in the Defense Logistics Agency's war stopper program. And and that program really is focused on maintaining an industrial base capacity, you know, on a regular basis such that you can flex that availability if something terrible happens. And so these are all kinds of efforts that VA has underway to be able to improve how it can respond both on a day-to-day basis and under normal operating circumstances and in future emergencies. And you have looked at those prior efforts. GAO did look at them before the pandemic and now looking at them again afterwards. Did you have any fresh recommendations for VA? Because it sounds like the agency is aware of the shortcomings there and wants to really get past them. Yeah. You know, like I said, VA has a lot of irons in the fire. They have a lot going on. And we didn't make new recommendations in this report, but I testified in March on this topic, and we made a recommendation actually in that testimony statement. And what it really was is, how is VA, you know, kind of communicating and strategizing for the interplay of all of these various supply chain management initiatives that it has underway. There is no one strategy for how VA is trying to tackle this issue. It's kind of like it's going at it from many different perspectives, but it's hard to understand and it's difficult to determine how they all play together to kind of move VA forward in this supply chain management approach that it's putting in place. And because an effective supply chain management strategy was one of the things that led us to putting VA on the high risk list in 2019, we recommended that VA put in place kind of an integrated strategy for all of these various efforts that outline timeframes, resources, 
schedule interdependencies so that decision makers can understand kind of how this is all going to play out and result in improvements for VA. And it sounds like, just as an aside, if they get their medical record system up and running and they're midway through that project, that would integrate all of the medical centers into one national system. Unlike, as you mentioned earlier, in the VISTA system, everyone is a stovepipe unto itself and they don't communicate city to city, really. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. You know, the electronic health record system relies on some of these other systems that I mentioned, the defense logistics, you know, inventory management system. They go hand in hand. And so this kind of more integrated, modern approach to all aspects of VA's delivery of health care for its veterans will be a huge improvement once it rolls out. But again, we lack information and VA lacks information on how the timing and interplay and, you know, how these things are all going to work together over the next several years to move VA to that more modern approach. Shelby Oakley is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at the GAO. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, along with a link to that report. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff To Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, he worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, 
What have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic. 
uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person, or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.